So Matt, this pirate walks into a bar and he's walking up to the bartender and the bartender notices that he's got a ship's wheel hanging off of his belt buckle. So the pirate walks up and he orders a drink and the bartender goes, okay, but uh, sir, do you realize that you have a steering wheel hanging off your belt buckle? And the pirate goes, aye, and it's driving me nuts. (laughs) Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't see that coming. I don't know why. I, I should have seen that coming. Man, those are the best. When, <laughs> when I can get you and you don't see it coming, those are the best. So first of all, we wanted to uh, comment on apparently we have upset the Snallagaster. <laughs> We have we have angered the Snallagaster. Yeah, I I didn't know I could anger a cryptid, but we did. Um, <laughs> so she came on to the podcast Monsters and Friends, and she kind of called us out because we. She, st- wait a minute, wait a minute. She called you out. Well, she, that's true. She, she didn't say anything about me. That's true. She <laughs> likes you apparently. Does not like me. So I need to apologize. <laughs> Um, to the Snallagaster because I said she didn't exist, and obviously she does. She's just angry at me. Yeah. So uh, one day we need to have her on, and we can discuss her existence, or how I believe non-existence, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, also, we wanted to talk about our upcoming giveaway. We've been kind of teasing to it for a little while. We finally got some things worked out, so... Look for a post on our social media that will give you the details of how you enter and all that stuff and follow the details. Do it. That's right. Um, You know, so keep an eye out on our Facebook page and our Twitter page, and we'll put up a video or something on there to tell you how you need to enter. Um, That's all I've got for the intro today. So, Matt, why don't we take a quick potty break and then we'll get back into it. Hillbilly Horror House Podcast. It's TV for your ears. Well, that was the last house today. What was wrong with this one? Stop, David, stop. It's the Hillbilly Horror House. I'm not scared. I'm just cautious. David, that house has a history. Wait, you're telling me someone died in this house? And another one disappeared? We'll take it. David, I did dream this, right? Sorry to lie to you, old friend. But what lies before you can't be shared. What in the living hell was that? It comes to me in my dreams. Subscribe today.
Hi guys! I'm Shelby. I'm Kinsey. And we host Heckle and Shide, a paranormal crime-filled podcast mixed with murder, sage, witchcraft, and rage. Crazy conspiracies and things that go bump in the night. And of course, lame boyfriends, bad weeks, and why we always run out of wine. Come join me as I drink my wine and convince you there are crystals for everything. And I swear like a drunk sailor while I drown myself in coffee. Sage that sh- and save our souls. Okay, so much like we did on our last show, um, we're, we're kind of changing things up. So I, I did, um, I, I pretty much taught Adam uh, all the ins and outs of the ancient ram. And today, Adam is going to teach us, and me included, about some of the weird, strange, maybe paranormal things that have gone on and led up to one of the worst nuclear disasters in history, mm-hmm. and that is the the Chernobyl event. Right. Um, and like you said, there there's a lot of weirdness that revolves around it and kind of leading up to it and what people think, you know, was a harbinger of the event and everything like that. So we'll get into it. For a, a lot of y'all, y'all may know what happened at Chernobyl. You may know what Chernobyl is, but... Some of y'all may not. So let's kind of get into what is Chernobyl and what happened. Now, on April 26, 1986, there was an explosion and a fire that occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Ukraine. Now, it was apparently the product of a flawed Soviet reactor design coupled with serious mistakes that were made by plant operators. The accident ended up destroying the Chernobyl 4 reactor, and it killed about 30 operators and firemen within three months and several other deaths that happened later on. One person was killed immediately, and a second died in hospital soon after as a result of the injuries that they received during the explosion. Another person is reported to have died at the time from coronary thrombosis, and I know Matt knows what that is, but we'll kind of quick definition of what that is. That's a blockage of the flow of blood to the heart that's caused by a blood clot in a coronary artery. So it, you know, could have been thrown loose due to the explosion. That can happen if you get super freaked out. You know, your body can start pumping more more blood and knock a clot loose. So this guy died of coronary thrombosis. Now, acute radiation syndrome, or ARS, so I don't have to keep saying acute radiation syndrome. (laughs) Um, ARS was originally diagnosed in 237 people on site and involved with the cleanup. Um, It was later confirmed in another 134 cases. Of these, 28 people died as a result of ARS within a few weeks of the accident. 19 more workers were subsequently they subsequently died between 1987 and 2004, but because their deaths were so far out from the accident, they can't really attribute it to radiation exposure. Most likely, yes, because of the symptoms and, and what they had, but they couldn't exactly say, yep, it happened because of the Chernobyl accident. Yeah. Now, nobody off-site suffered from ARS effects, although there's a significant fraction of thyroid cancers that were diagnosed since the accident in patients. 
that they were children at the time of the accident. And now as adults, they've had thyroid issues. And they say that's probably from the intake of radioactive iodine fallout. And it can cause thyroid issues in you if you're exposed to too much radiation. Um, There were large areas of Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, and beyond that were contaminated in varying degrees. Does anybody find it weird that we use radiation to treat cancer, and yet we know that radiation can cause cancer? It, yeah, I've, I've always wondered that myself. That is weird. Yeah, yeah. it's, I don't know, it, it's, like, it's almost like a snake anti-venom thing. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to use what's killing you to save you. Right. And, it, and, and I mean, it just, that's, it's bizarre to me. And, it, and it, I know it has everything to do with the amount. And, and application. Yeah, and how it's and, and how it's introduced into the body. Mm-hmm. But I think it also speaks to just how dangerous, you know, radioactive elements really are. Right. You know, and, and it blows me away, too, when I was reading into this, that in 86, I mean, our understanding of nuclear energy was pretty good. I mean, it was good enough that they could build this plant. Sure. But all these firefighters and cleanup workers that, I mean, you would think they would know how to protect themselves better. Either that or what protection they had that they thought was enough wasn't anywhere near enough. Yeah. And that's probably a lot of what it was because they seem to learn a lot through the cleanup process and all that. And I'll kind of explain where we're at now with Chernobyl here in a, in a minute, but they did learn a lot through going in and investigating and cleaning up as to what works, what doesn't. And as with a lot of other things, this was the first disaster that was that big. So they had no idea, you know, how to handle it, take care of it. They just had theories on what would work. And as we know, in a lot of things, it <laughs> your first experience with something, you're going to screw up big yeah, time. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, and and there was a lot of screw up involved in the cleanup and, you know, people's lives and everything. But um, the Chernobyl power complex uh, lies about 130 kilometers north of Kiev, Ukraine, and it's about 20 kilometers south of the border with Belarus. And it consisted of four nuclear reactors. Now, units one and two were constructed between 1970 and 1977. Now, Units 3 and 4, designed exactly the same way, they were completed in 1983. So Unit 4, which is the unit that exploded and had the meltdown, was only about three years old at the time. Now, there were two more reactors that were under construction at the site at the time of the accident, but obviously they didn't get finished. Um, Now, To the southeast of the plant, there's an artificial lake that's about 22 square kilometers, and it's situated between the River Pripyat, um, and it was constructed to provide cooling waters for those reactors. So that would be where they would draw the water to cool the reactors down. Now, about three kilometers away from the reactor in the new city Pripyat, there were about 49,000 inhabitants. The old town of Chernobyl had a population of about 12,500, and it's about 15 kilometers to the southeast of the complex. 
Now, within a 30-kilometer radius of that power plant, the total population was between 115,000 and 135,000 at the time of the accident. And all of those people had to be evacuated because of radioactive fallout and all that. And can you imagine the yeah, I mean, the that's, panic? Uh, yeah, and how? Yeah. How do you get that many people out that, you know, that quickly? Right. You know, I mean, this isn't like, hey, there's a hurricane coming. We got, you know, a couple days. Mm-hmm. We got to evacuate. No, this is this was like it's happening right now. Yeah, you're gonna have to try to outrun this. Yep. this radioactive energy. Holy crap! Get out that you can't see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you don't know if it's on top of you already or not. Yeah, you're just running and hoping for the best. Is yeah. pretty much what it is. We said we'd kind of get into where we're where we are with it today. Now, Chernobyl unit four was enclosed in a large concrete shelter and that was erected pretty quickly by October of 1986. Um, And this allowed for continuing operation of the other reactors at the plant. But the structure is neither strong nor durable. So the internal shelter implement plan in the 1990s involved raising money to do remedial work, including removing fuel-containing materials. And some major work on the shelter was carried out in 1998 and 1999. There's about 200 tons of highly radioactive material that remains deep within it, and this poses an environmental hazard, obviously, until it can be better contained later. Um, There's a new safe confinement, or N. SC structure that was completed in 2017. It was built adjacent and then moved into place on rails. It's an arc of about 110 meters high, 165 meters long, and spanning 260 meters covering both Unit 4 and the other hastily built structure that was built in 1986. So this is another big building that they just kind of went... And stuck it on top of everything to hopefully contain what is left of the radioactivity that's in that area. To not bore you with any more details, we'll move on to the Graveyard Tales topics of tonight. (laughs) Yeah. This is how this fits into our show. Right. (laughs) You thought I was just giving you a a history lesson. Yeah, it's a a history lesson. Yeah. And we've we've changed the whole format of Graveyard Tales. We're just going to give you... (laughs) Boring historical details. Now, there there have been some paranormal cases that people have talked about around there, but believe it or not, there hasn't been a lot of stories that have come out because of that. And I think that's due to there's not many people that are allowed in there. You know, you have to for get, good reason. Exactly. You have to get permits, and the government has to allow you in, and all that other stuff. So it's hard to go in to have paranormal activity. But in 1997, Andrei Karsakov is a nuclear physicist from New York, and he he had this account happen to him. He said he went to the power station at 7.30 a.m. and went to the number four reactor sarcophagus, which is... What in in cases? What what an ominous name! Oh, dude, yeah. (laughs) Number four reactor sarcophagus. So 
um, that's exactly where the explosion occurred. Now, he couldn't go inside due to the radiation, but as he took radiation readings, he heard someone screaming for rescue from a fire inside of that building. So here's what he said. He said, I ran upstairs to tell someone, but they said that when I entered the reactor control room, I was the first person to open that door in three years. And the only way to get inside the old reactor is through the doors I came in through. If someone had gone inside the reactor when I was not looking, they would have tripped an alarm that goes off when the reactor door is open mechanically. The reactor door requires a password and a handprint, yet someone or something was inside. Later that evening, as we were eating dinner outside the building by the river next to the plant, a floodlight turned on in the room of the installation. There was no way anyone could be inside. As we ate, we figured there was a power surge or something. Then just as my colleague said that, the light turned off. So he, he's experienced hearing a voice inside a building where nobody can be, and then lights going on and off. Now, when when was this? When did he experience this? Nineteen ninety seven. Okay, so after everything has, you know, it's it's long done, and they're they're just doing research. Right, right, yeah, they're just going in to do research on radioactive decay or how things are holding up there at the site. So a place where nobody was supposed to be, right? Nobody really could be, right? And hadn't opened that door in three years. Yeah. He's the first person to walk inside in three years, and he hears someone screaming for help. So, obviously, that's some residual energy that's there. And I'm not going to argue that. It was a place of major disaster. Yeah. Almost uh, almost like replaying what happened. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it, it could be, you know, that there's not like an intelligent spirit there. It's just a confused, trapped entity that is replaying their last moments. Yeah. And I've, I've always wondered in situations like this, if, if it's really what we would think of as a traditional haunting where there's a spirit that's stuck or is it more of because of the energy related to the event, it's just, it's that stone tape thing right. where it, it's not, there's not, there's no interaction to be had. You know, there may not even be any real evidence to collect other than maybe, you know, audio, right. perhaps, you know, especially if this guy heard it with his own ears and mm-hmm. not recorded. If it's just not replaying just over and over and over, you know, the energy is just stored there. And it, when a living person interacts in the area, they're, they're privy to that replay. Right. You know, and, and it becomes a, you know, paranormal event, but maybe not in the traditional sense of, you know, a spirit inhabiting that it's just the event just over and over. And I mean, and, the fact that the area is still radioactive, you know, there's a lot of energy there that could keep fueling this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we know from other big nuclear disasters and with 
atom bombs that have gone off. They're like in um, Hiroshima where a bomb went off. There was on the concrete after that explosion, you could see shadows of people because of that bright flash and the energy and everything. It torched the concrete except where there was a body. Mm -hmm. So we know that that energy can leave an impression, even just physical. So right. it it could definitely burn in some sort of, like you said, a, a, an energy, spiritual energy or something that would cause this to replay. And that could very well be what people are witnessing, that it's not a spirit trap there. It's not a an intelligent haunting of some sort. It's just, you know, security camera footage rolling over and over and over again. Yeah, and and it also when you when you consider what psychics experience when they visit places, you know, that are you know, full of quote unquote paranormal activity and and they begin to experience events, you know, and, and I'm sure there are tons of people that are are sensitive to this and don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. But it makes me wonder would the average person go in there and notice nothing? Hence becoming the, the skeptic, right? You know, what, what are you talking about? You're just making this up. You're trying to scare me. You want some attention, but somebody that's sensitive may pick up on that energy. And that's what they hear and feel Sure, is the event. Yeah. You know, cause I mean, we've all seen shows where psychics are in a house, uh, where they're saying somebody died here. I can feel it. It was a child or, you know, it was someone and they were, they were intensely afraid and you, you get all those emotions and the feelings. And then you, you'll even see them where they say, I can, I can hear them crying out. I can hear them screaming mm -hmm. where the other individuals in the room aren't experiencing that. Right. So, you know, I think I fall on kind of in the middle of that, maybe a little bit where it's like certain people are going to experience this. Not everybody is going to be able to experience this where, which makes it harder to convince people that it's happening. Right. Um, and, and then the other side of it is the reason that it's happening is because of the energy that's there. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's probably a lot of it, you know, and a lot of the people that would be going to places like Chernobyl are scientists and, and, you know, military people and all that who won't necessarily be connected in that sort of realm. Mm -hmm. You know, they're grounded in science. They're grounded in fact. And so they've kind of shut off some of the other senses that they might have. So you don't really have anybody saying, hey, let's bring in a psychic into Chernobyl. Imagine, know? but imagine how sensory deprivating, like, you know, a hazmat suit for working around radioactive material would be mm -hmm. your vision has got to be a little impaired. Your hearing definitely would be, you know, your sense of touch. So we take away all those sensitive senses, maybe just maybe your, your, that inner sense of, I can, I can pick up on something here is heightened that's because true. everything else would be diminished. That's true. That's, that's a good point. Um, 
So I would be interested to see if in more, you know, in later years, if, if we're able to get more accounts from them. Um, one of the other weird things that happened around Chernobyl has been dubbed the blackbird of Chernobyl. Now, according to legend, there were people who saw this large winged creature with red eyes in early April before the Chernobyl disaster. The creature became known as the blackbird of Chernobyl. And many people have thought of it a lot like the Mothman here in the Americas because both creatures were supposedly seen right before disasters. Now, the Mothman obviously was spotted right before the Silver Bridge collapse in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And that that cost 46 people their lives. So compared to Chernobyl, it it was fewer, but it was a large disaster. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they also seem to be similar in appearance. They're described as a large, dark, and headless man with gigantic wings and piercing red eyes. Now, when you hear headless, you know, you think, well, how can he have red eyes and be headless? But if you look at drawings of the Mothman or whatever, it's not a head in the sense that we would consider a head with a neck and then kind of a roundish head on top. It's just goes from the shoulders up kind of around and back down to the other shoulder. Yeah. So almost as, as if like the head is just a part of the upper torso, right? The face and everything, right? It, it's just a, a slightly narrower part of the torso. So that, that's what they mean. But it, it, they both looked very similar. Now survivors of Chernobyl disaster reported seeing this creature flying away from the reactor Now, reports of this bird stopped immediately after the disaster. Those who believe that the bird was a paranormal entity regarded it as a harbinger of the bad things that were to come. Others believed it was just a black stork that was seen in the area. And we we heard that with the Mothman in Point Pleasant. Everybody believed it was just a crane or or stork or heron or something like that um so there there is a uh, an endangered black stork in that region but people don't see them that often because it is endangered mm-hmm. so it would be kind of rare that that many people would see it and not go oh that's a stork we know what that is sure you know but we've talked about that with other things it's not an owl <laughs> You know. It's not a stork. No, it's not an owl. It's not a stork. Now, there are a couple different versions of this story that have kind of made their rounds on the internet. So I thought I would read both of those accounts, and then we could kind of talk about them afterward. Now, version one, that the earliest known typing of it on the internet was about 2005. Now, that doesn't immediately negate the sincerity of it because you know like a lot of other things it could be these people had the story but they didn't want to come out with that at the time because they'd be ridiculed so just because it's so many years after the event doesn't make it not true you know but this started circulating in about 2005 now here's the story Beginning in April of 1986, a rumor tore through the ranks of what was then a little-known nuclear power plant located in the southern tier of Ukraine in Chernobyl. 
In the days preceding the tragic meltdown, four Chernobyl employees had reported seeing what they claimed was a large, dark, headless man with gigantic wings and fire-red eyes. Chernobyl employees began to share unsettling and strangely similar experiences. Some had been having horrifying nightmares while others received threatening phone calls. According to the account, some of these employees even mentioned their bizarre experiences to their superiors at the facility, but without evidence or any clear-cut indication of what the problem may be, there was very little that these officials could do, even had they been willing to take any action. On April 26, 1986, during a routine test of Reactor 4, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant was rocked by a massive explosion. And it goes on to tell about the people that died. Um, And then it says, as the Soviet helicopters circled the smoldering plant, dropping over 500 pounds of clay, sand, lead, and other extinguishing chemicals on top of the flames, some of the surviving workers who, at the sacrifice of their own lives, heroically struggled to prevent any further destruction, claim to have witnessed what has been described as a 20-foot bird gliding through the tentacles of irradiated smoke which continued to spew from the reactor. So, that's version one. And... It talks about the nightmares and the phone calls, which is exactly like what happened during the Point Pleasant Mm -hmm. events revolving around the Mothman. People would have bad nightmares about the bridge collapse. They would all get weird phone calls. You know, the phones were just wonky in Point Pleasant. So it has some parallels there. Now, version two... The earliest known circulation of this was in 2007. It starts off the same way. Beginning in April of 1986, the people in and around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant began to experience a series of strange events revolving around sightings of a mysterious creature described as a large, dark, and mutated man with gigantic wings and piercing red eyes. People affected by this phenomenon experienced horrific nightmares, threatening phone calls, and first-hand encounters with the winged beast which became known as the Blackbird of Chernobyl. Reports of these strange happenings continued to increase until the morning of April 26, 1986, when at 1.23 a.m., the Reactor 4 of Chernobyl Nuclear Power Plant suffered a catastrophic steam explosion that resulted in a fire, which caused a series of additional explosions followed by a nuclear meltdown. Then it kind of tells where it is. And it says, following the meltdown and subsequent explosions and fires, Soviet helicopters were dispatched to the scene equipped with special firefighting gear. These helicopters circled the plant, dropping clay, sand, and lead, other extinguishing chemicals, onto the burning facility. Most of the fire was put out by 5 a.m., with the fire burning within the reactor 4, continuing to blaze for several hours. The firefighters who responded were unaware of the nature of the fire, assuming that it was simply an electrical fire and received massive overdoses of radiation, leading to many of their deaths. Now, the workers who survived the initial blast and fire that would later die of radiation poisoning claimed to have witnessed what has been described as a large black bird-like creature with a 20-foot wingspan gliding through the swirling plumes of irradiated smoke pouring from the reactor. No other sightings of the Blackbird of Chernobyl were reported after the Chernobyl disaster, leaving researchers to speculate just what haunted the workers of the plant during the days leading up to the disaster. So, both of them are very similar. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, we've had reports of the Mothman in other situations, you know, even recently that it revolves around a disaster that's going to happen. Obviously, the most well-known is Point Pleasant, but they're seeing this again at Chernobyl. And the thing is, would people in the Ukraine at that time know about the Mothman in Point Pleasant, West Virginia? I don't know how popular that had gotten by 86. Yeah, I I don't either. In fact, outside of Point Pleasant and probably to just a few people who around the time were were tuned into things like this that it, it was I mean it was it was widely published and known about. I mean, I had never heard of it until I actually saw the movie, you know, and, and then later, you know, there was more and more information. And of course with, you know, the invention of the internet, it, it all these kind of stories became much more popular and widespread. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about 1986, you know, the likelihood of, of this just being um, the idea that people were connecting the two, I, I don't buy it. I mean, I don't think that there would be enough people in in Russia that would have had access to a story like that without the Internet. Right. And, and we could be wrong, but it, that seems plausible. We, we could always be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, Anything we say, just realize we could be wrong. <laughs> right. We, we don't profess to know everything about it. Um, but it, it does seem like it would be a weird coincidence that somebody working at Chernobyl would know about the Point Pleasant issues with Mothman and then just say that that's what happened at Chernobyl. Um, if you know, you're getting stories firsthand from the people that were there and they saw it, I'm sure they saw it, you know, and there wouldn't be a black stork circling around a explosion, you know, the fire, smoke and all that. You wouldn't have a black stork hanging out, flying through the plumes of smoke. You wouldn't Mo- think. No, most of those animals would get the hell out of there. That's right. Because they know before we know that yeah. it's bad. Right. You know? So they can probably sense the radiation before we could. Yeah. So my thought is it's probably not a black stork that's just chilling in the plumes of smoke. Yeah. Um. Now, this, this next thing is not paranormal in any way. It's just weird. And I, I thought I'd share it. Now, these people are called stalkers, and in 2014, Slate ran an, ran an extensive piece by Holly Morris that was on a subcultural phenomenon known as stalkers. Now, these young Russians and Ukrainians, almost all of them were men, they romanticized the apocalyptic environment of the exclusion zone, and that's the cordoned-off area that surrounded Chernobyl. They sneak in, explore buildings, sleep in the ruins, and even bring 
Geiger counters along to see how much radiation they expose themselves to on their journeys. Now, stalkers take their name from characters in the novel Roadside Picnic, which was turned into a classic Soviet film. And it was entitled Stalkers. And it was directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. Now, the term refers to thieves who sneak into zones harboring lethal phenomena and places to which authorities have forbidden entrance. So these stalkers will eat fruit that grows in the exclusion zone. And, Yikes. <laughs> yeah. And they will find, you know, things of people who live there, like ID cards and journals and all this stuff, and they will read them and pick them up and mess with them and all that stuff. Now, they dress in paramilitary gear, and they wear gas masks and balaclavas and other stuff to cover their faces, but... But not the rest of their body? No, they're, they're courting death. Oh, God. You know, that you are not... You're not allowed to go in there by the government for a reason. Because... You are risking getting radiation poisoning and becoming irradiated yourself. And if you remove anything from there that is highly irradiated, you could expose someone else to radiation sickness. So there's a reason you're not allowed to go in there. But there's a group of young men in the Ukraine who do this and they'll eat food in there, which is crazy to me. Yeah. That, you know, because you know that's irradiated. Yeah. Even if it's growing there. Yeah, years after. It, yeah. I mean, the place is still radioactive. Yeah, because you have to think of the half-life of radioactive substances. And nothing, we haven't had enough time pass. Yeah, it's it a hell to, of a lot longer than 30 years. Yeah, it's going to be know? thousands of years before the the soil is not contaminated to a level that the plants and stuff that grow there wouldn't be saturated with radiation. Yeah. So that was just crazy to me. And I, I wanted to share because I, I would not be one of those stalkers <laughs> no. going in there. I know that would not be a good idea. I'd be the guy with the Geiger counter going, uh, no, yeah, not yet. Yep. Dude. <laughs> nope. Nope. Get, let's get out of here. Man, you're like 40 miles away. I'm already get, I'm getting a reading. Yeah, it beeps once. It's very once. small. Yeah. <laughs> it, it could, it, I, I could be standing too close to somebody's <laughs> microwave or something. Yep. <laughs> but I'm not going any further. I swear I just heard it beep. So I'm not, I'm not taking a step further. I promise. Um, now there were some reports of the Chernobyl disaster being a cover up. So I thought that was interesting. Now, there's a documentary out called The Russian Woodpecker, and it explores a conspiracy theory that is explained by a Ukrainian artist named Fodor Alexandrovich. Now, the theory indicates that the meltdown was actually orchestrated in order to cover up the failure of the Russian woodpecker. Now, the Russian woodpecker was an array of radar that was meant to detect missiles before they had been launched and was so named because it made a loud tapping sound. Now, the it cost about 7 billion rubles, and it did not work. Now, the woodpecker, formerly called Duga 3, was located very near Chernobyl. 
Alexandrovich's evidence says that the Duga 3 probably didn't work because of the Aurora Borealis messing with the signals. So the Soviets may not have accounted for that. And it would have been very bad for Soviet leaders to admit that they screwed up. Furthermore, Chernobyl's instability was already well known as they had issues with the reactors before, so a meltdown would make for a convincing story. Hmm. So I don't know if I believe that or not, you know, that you would stage such a large disaster and you would spend more than the 7 billion rubles in cleanup right? from yeah, I the mean, Chernobyl disaster. You know, we I, I like to say, you know, sometimes that's like killing a fly with a sledgehammer. Yep. This is like killing a fly with an atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. if, if that was the case, killing a woodpecker with a bomb, that's got, there got to be, if, if, if that's true, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. I mean, a, a million better ways than to, to not just, you know, not just to take the lives of the people that were there, but to know that you were putting, you know, the people that would have to go in after the fact you know, at risk. And then just, you're, you're just partaking that part of your country and saying, eh, you know, we're giving this up. Exactly. And, and you could potentially have done that to your entire country. You don't know know where the fallout's going to go. And, you know, world leaders do some crazy stuff, but I can't even imagine. No, that that would, They, they wouldn't do anything to the point of where it could harm them. Right. And very well could have gotten out of hand. There were three other reactors on site that if they'd have blown, it'd have been a whole lot bigger of an issue. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I really don't see that as being what happened. Yeah. To go to those extremes to save face. Yeah. Yeah. They could have, uh-uh. it would have been much easier to do something and just blow up the woodpecker array. Yeah. Rather than like you said, losing that whole part of their country, you know, because they still can't use that part of their country. So why would they do that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't buy into that conspiracy theory. No. <laughs> it just seems too, too outlandish. Yeah. It, it's pretty crazy. Now there's a, th- this is from a vice article and this is a direct quote from the article. It says on a small rocky Island at the southernmost point of Europe, A bearded Russian scientist addresses a nervous church congregation in a darkened outhouse. There won't be any new generations, he says. We are the last generation. We won't permit the birth of people who are mortals. They are not needed. Now, apparently, this guy is a member of what is known as an immortality commune. And they moved to the island about 15 years ago. Now, a lot of them are survivors of Chernobyl. Now, the movement is actually headed by a man who survived a a ginormous dose of radiation at the plant. Now, they kind of, they've hand-built all of their laboratories and made a self-contained compound. And one of the buildings they built has a green, like opaque pyramid of glass that protrudes from the roof. Now they feel they need to reconstruct the world and implement quote, the birth of a new immortal human. 
The scientists are facing extradition after they began building a Greek temple where they aim to revive Pythagorean philosophy and unearth forgotten Greek mysteries. So apparently this guy that heads the commune thinks that he is immortal because he survived that dose of radiation. And he believes that the rest of his commune are immortals as well. So they moved out there to try to start up a race of immortal humans. And it's just now starting to come out as to what they're doing and why they're doing it and everything. And they're facing extradition from the government because they're like, you guys are wacko and we don't want you here. But some people kind of tend to think that because of his high doses of radiation, he's gone a little crazy. Yeah. And when he, and when he pees, it glows and smokes and right. burns you, a hole in the You crack. can't lose him in the dark. <laughs> Golly. Hey, remember Mr. Burns from that one yeah. Simpsons episode where he's walking out <laughs> and they think it's an alien because he's glowing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I'm laughing. I'm not, not making light of what happened. I'm making light of what this dude believes. I mean, come on. I mean, it's, it is it is amazing if he did get that much radiation sure. that he would survive, you know, without, you know, developing, even if he survived initially, mm-hmm. you know, you know, radiation poisoning causes a lot of problems down the line. Right. You know, and, and who knows? I mean, he, he may have some kind of horrific problem that has just not manifested itself yet. Right. But. I mean that that sounds And if know, he's not going why why the hell is he come is he is he talking from an outhouse? Yeah, I I, I don't realize it's yeah. <laughs> funny. I I know that the term outhouse can be used for other no. things, but that that's what went into my head when you said that. Dude, I read it and I saw you sit up. <laughs> yeah, what a terrible place. I was know? like, I'm gonna keep plugging on so he can't cut in. <laughs> he knew it was coming. Yep. <laughs> so Let's move on to animal mutations. Now, you get these stories and theories that radiation, high doses of radiation can cause mutants. And we see it in comic books. We see it, you know, I mean, Spider-Man was because of an (laughs) irradiated spider. Yeah. You know, Um, but in reality... That's not exactly what happens, but as soon as you hear a, a an irradiated zone, you obviously think of giant beasts and whatnot. I think of three-eyed fish. Yeah, Blinky. <laughs> so, ever since that disaster, there have been reports of oversized wildlife that kind of roam the badlands there, and... Also, monster fish that cruise through the lakes that I mentioned earlier that were cooling ponds and stuff, and the rivers that were just there. Now, there are various reports of massive fish that were allegedly caught, which are said to be far beyond the normal sizes of their species. Well, Jeremy Wade from River Monsters actually went to Chernobyl to search for a giant mutated catfish. And he didn't have much luck. 
Um, the main catch was a slightly large catfish that seemed otherwise in all respects normal looking, but which proved to be a stunted individual, only 50% of what it should have been at its advanced age. Now, radiation tests of the fish showed that it was literally dripping with radiation to the point that it was completely inedible. They say it's not really evidence of the monster fish that were reported in the area, but it does show that the environment has been altered by radiation. And that's what we see a lot of in the Chernobyl Pripyat area is not giant individuals, but actually stunted individuals because the radiation will get in and break down DNA sequences and you only get weird mutations if that radiation breaks down enough to where it's trying to repair itself and it repairs it weird. So then you end up with five, six legged horses and stuff like that. But for the most part, the radiation now that's there is enough to stunt the growth of or cause reproductive issues yeah. with animals, but not create mutant giant catfish and stuff. Yeah. I, I like the idea that, because I agree that, you know, radiation would, would cause more of a, of a stunted growth. And especially if we're talking about catfish in particular, finding a giant catfish in a lake that's not routinely fished would, wouldn't impress me. Right. I mean, I mean red tail catfish can get to 350 pounds. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, blue catfish about the same. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you could pull out a catfish that's as large or larger than a large human, mm-hmm. you know, and you can find that other places in the world. So right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily make now, if you found a bunch of catfish in there that were normally, you know, you know, six to eight feet long mm-hmm. and they're six inches long. Yeah. You know, to me that, Oh, that that's more of a story. It's not impressive. Right. Look at his little catfish. I call it, you know, right. radiation did this to him, you know, no, I mean, Jeremy Wade pulling out, you know, a catfish the size of a city bus would have made for great television. Sure, sure. <laughs> or if he pulled it out and it had legs and it walked right. away from it. Yeah. You, you know, know, multiple eyes or, mm-hmm. you know, something, you know, it looked like some kind of frogfish hybrid. Yeah. Right. You know, but again, I, I, I don't know that there's enough evidence that radiation is going to cause those kind of mutations that, people imagine in their head or have gotten out of comic books, like you said. Right. But since we're talking about weirdness in animals and comic books and stuff, let's get into this next one. This next one is, (laughs) here we go. This is a pretty cool urban legend that I found that I haven't found any legitimacy to. I can't, you know, and once you hear it, you'll understand why I probably can't find any legitimacy to it. But, it's fun. Now, there was a this weird report that started to make the rounds in the 90s, um, and it seemed to point to some sort of giant mutant spider. This story starts with the discovery of an unidentified man that was slumped over dead in a bleak, dilapidated tower block. The man was allegedly found sprawled out in an elevator and... Examination of the corpse found that there were two yellowish-blue bruised puncture marks to the neck, and that he was this weird-like 
really pale color. So when the corpse was brought in to be examined, it was found that the cause of death had been an extreme amount of blood loss or exsanguination, which the body looked to be practically sucked dry, yet there were no signs of blood stains in the vicinity of the body or on him when he was found. There were also no signs of foul play, forced entry into the the tower or anything. Now, the story allegedly caught on among local residents of the tower block, and they began to speak of some foul vampire that was on the loose, and this rumor was one that authorities wanted to squash. You know, they didn't, they didn't want reports of an alleged vampire running around their city. So the rumors of this vampire on the loose continued, and panic increased until one month after the first uh, killing of a in the residence apartment block, they heard the frantic screams of a girl emanating from the elevator, and they contacted the police. Now, horrified authorities would discover the corpse of a 13-year-old girl trapped within an elevator that was stuck between the fourth and fifth floors of the building. Once again, the body was found drained of blood, bruised yellow puncture marks on her chest, and eerily, it was the very same elevator that the first victim had been found in. So authorities wanted to stop, you know, these rumors and kind of quell everybody's unrest. And they sent a detective and police sergeant um, to the area to spend several days regularly riding up and down in the crime scene elevator for hours at a time. Now, it's said that on one patrol, the elevator suddenly stalled between the fifth and sixth floors. The lights went out, and it forced the two officers to use their flashlights. Now, at this point, the policemen were not really alarmed. They just thought it was an old elevator that had broken down, and they'd get it going again here in a minute. Well, they used their two-way radios to inform their colleagues of the development, and they waited to be rescued. Now, the two men became alarmed when they heard this clicking noise from above them. They moved their flashlights upward to catch a glimpse of a dark square where a roof panel had been dislodged. It was there that the strange sound was coming from. So after a moment of holding their flashlights up there on the hole, they noticed a furry head about the size of a man's fist peering into the elevator at him. Now, the sergeant drew his weapon, but was ordered not to fire as the thing seemed to be cowering from the light. Now, they wanted to test this theory, so the detective turned off his flashlight, and whatever it was shifted and moved, revealing itself to be an enormous spider with legs about three feet long. Now, this sent the sergeant into a panic, and he dropped his flashlight, and it went out. Now that the whole elevator was dark, the creature was said to have descended into the elevator and started to attack the sergeant. It bit him over and over again until the detective managed to get his flashlight back on and he fired his weapon, which scared the creature away. Now, he allegedly shot one of its legs off, but according to the story, 
The emergency room response team arrived to find the sergeant dead from blood loss and the spider's leg quivering on the floor. Hmm. So that's a great urban legend. Yeah. And it's one that would keep me out of that stupid elevator. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Whether it's legit or not, I would not be going into that elevator. Um, Yeah, if you told me there's a ghost in there, like, okay, let's go check it out. If you told me right. there's a giant spider in there, I'm going to be like, let's, yeah. let's, let's go somewhere else. Peace. I'm gone. <laughs> you can have your giant spider. Yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah. Messing with a giant spider. Right. But, but like we were talking, you know, most of the time radiation is going to cause a shrinking of species, mm-hmm. not a, you know, ginormous three foot legged spider that kills humans. And there's been no other stories come out about it. Just this one that has floated around the internet. So, you know, it's creepy. It's weird, but it's just an urban legend, creepy pasta type thing, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, the the last thing to touch on is it's not, you know, like we said in the beginning, there's not a whole lot of paranormal activity because there's not many people that go out to the Chernobyl site. But Josh Gates from Destination Truth, one of his first shows, was actually able to get permission to go out there and do an investigation. And they went to Pripyat, not actually Chernobyl, but they went to Pripyat, which is, you know, shut down ghost town as well. And apparently they found a lot, which you can see this on, if you just search Destination Truth, Ghost of Chernobyl, and you'll be able to find it. But while they were roaming through the ruins of the city, they managed to pick up heat sources resembling humans with their thermal cameras. But obviously there's no people around. So they found with their FLIR cameras, they found a lot of human-shaped heat sources in buildings, behind windows. You know, I I think some of them were like around corners. They would come around the corner with their FLIR and catch just a heat signature, kind of move off to the side. So there was one witness in the area that reported that she saw this distorted ghostly figure of someone she knew that actually died in the accident. So she knew this person and then was seeing their spirit 30 years later hanging around that area when she went. So we've got... No, I've seen images on a thermal camera of mm -hmm. people. I I didn't make out detail like that to think, hey, that's somebody I know. She didn't see the the FLIR thing, images. She just saw the the apparition. Oh, I got you. Yeah. I got you. Um somebody that lived in the area that was apparently being visited by her friend spirit. Um, I would like to get more reports, more paranormal reports from that area. Um, But obviously we can't just go investigate. You know, you can't send these TV show ghost hunters in there to go find out and local ghost hunting groups can't get permits to go in and do it. But I really wish there was a way that we could because I would be willing to bet that there is a lot of activity in places like Pripyat 
that you could potentially record, whether it be like Matt was saying earlier, the, the stone tape theory of just seeing people's last days or people killed in the blast or people who died later on from radiation sickness that their ghost then came back to a familiar area to them. But I I just thought Chernobyl was an interesting place to look into. Yeah, it's definitely, and it'll be, it would be interesting to me to find out what, what it will be like in a hundred years. You know, if, if it's safer for people to go in and do these kind of investigations and what they find, of course, you know, who knows what we would know in a hundred years. Right. But I think that in 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 a longer span of time, we'll know more about what what really has happened in the aftermath. Mm-hmm. You know, right now I think it's it's still too early to to fully investigate right. all the things that could potentially have happened you know, after the accident. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it it is cool. Um, the stories, I mean, um, that have come out about the events leading up to it. And then the things that have happened afterwards, Mm -hmm. you know, and some of these stories, you know, that because we can't just go in there and fully investigate it like we would, you know, another location. Right. Um, it, it seems to me it's a, it's easy to promote stories like giant spiders and things mm-hmm. like that because nobody is going to be able to really go in there and prove you wrong. Prove you wrong, right? You know, so it it, it is right for more urban legends to to spring up about it, and you know, and I, I think that there's a lot of other stories, and if you look, you're going to find stories that are wildly outlandish and. You know, no way to disprove them, and and even even Adam and I had talked about this while we were beginning to look into this. That there aren't very many stories that are documented mm-hmm. with you know names and dates and things like that, which also lend them to be more urban legend like. Right. When you say you know my sister's cousin's brother's hairdresser, <laughs> you know it. Yeah. It doesn't lend the credence that you would like to that story. Um, But let us know, what do you guys think of the Mothman-type Blackbird of Chernobyl events? Do you think that could be legitimate, or could there be some some other explanation? Is it a black stork? If y'all say owl, I will smack your hand. (laughs) Um, (laughs) have, Have you heard of any other stories coming from Chernobyl that we didn't cover that you thought were interesting. Let us know those too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed this. We hope y'all did too. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of strange stories that, that come out of this horrible disaster that, that took place. So, um, so Adam and I would like to thank everybody that has, uh, supported the show. Um, we really do appreciate it. Um, all of you uh, Patreon supporters out there, um, you're helping us continue to, to make the show better. Um, go to our website and, and check out some of the stuff that we've, uh, we've done. And like I said, you're going to be able to find some information on the giveaway coming up 
It's graveyardpodcast.com, and there you're able to listen to the show. You can uh, find out more about Adam and myself, and uh, and you can sign up and become a patron. Um, go and follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please, as always, I'm going to beat this dead horse. Go and rate and review us mm-hmm. on iTunes because that is the easiest way to move us up the chart and allow more people to find us and come into the graveyard. Exactly. So, until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. Yeah.